Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Kingsway Podcast from Pastor Sean. You are about to hear a message from a recent Sunday service. We consider it a privilege to be on a spiritual journey with you. So take a few moments with us and allow God to inspire you today. So we have been studying the book of Proverbs. This is a book that we've studied all of last month and now we're studying it this month. It just means that we're going through each chapter, one chapter a day for the day of the month that it is. Today is the 27th. You would be reading Proverbs 27 tonight. 26 was yesterday. And, and I tell you, you know, when you read Proverbs, there's a lot of really simple truths in there. You read it and you go, yeah, I can do this. Yeah, this is easy. And then there's other places in Proverbs where you're like, uh, what did they say? I don't know if I understand that or I don't know if I could do that. It brought up this dichotomy in my mind that there are some things in Proverbs that are literally at face value, they seem impossible to do. And yet there are other things in Proverbs that seem so very basic, so simple, and yet we don't do them. And I wonder to myself, does the difficulty of the suggestion of the wisdom, does that lead to us doing it or not doing it? Or in fact, do sometimes... Do we encounter everyday life that just seems impossible? Do we encounter situations that face value are somewhat easy and then they're difficult? So to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, I was talking to my kids about this and they helped me put together a little video of things that are seemingly impossible to do. And you know, it can be a little bit funny when you watch these people attempt it. So let's take a look at people trying to jump into a pool. That's easy enough. Or people trying to do a back handspring. That sounds impossible. Hat back handspring. Ooh. How about a Jenga game? You should be able to do this, right? Ooh, that hurts. Okay, standing on someone's shoulders. This is impossible. And that's what happens when you try it. I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. Oh, I can't do it. No matter how hard he tries, he cannot get the lid open. An easy task for some, impossible for the little guy. How did you do that? How does this happen? It's such a basic thing. How does this happen? And of course, we all try to do something that we know is impossible to do. It's not going to end well. Okay, hopefully you're seeing my point. Some things that are very easy for some people are nearly impossible for others, and some things just shouldn't be tried or attempted at all, ever. It begs the question, how do you do that? I'm sure the guy on the bike's like, how do you do that? How do you get fast enough and ride over this hill? How do you do a back handspring? And we attempt it, and we laugh at these things because, you know, in the physical world, in the cardinal world, try all sorts of silly things, and you catch it on tape, and hey, you could go viral on, on YouTube, and that's a cool thing. But when you look now at the Bible, and you say, are there situations where you look and say, well, how, how could you even do that? Let's give an example. Proverbs 26, there's a really interesting verse. It's four and five. If you read it, you read it yesterday, and it says something really basic like, don't answer fools. Because if you do, you may be stooping to such a foolish level as them. You're like, oh yeah, I, I can do that, surely. I have to see a fool, I won't answer a fool. That's verse 5. Verse 6, or verse, verse 4 and 5, is 4 and 5. Verse, the first, right after it says, you should answer a fool. Because you may 
be allowing them to reach a conclusion that they shouldn't be reaching. So you say to yourself, well, what is it? Do I answer a fool? Do I not answer a fool? How do I do that? The scripture seems nearly impossible at face value. Anybody read these verses yesterday? Did anybody come to this conclusion? Maybe somebody was reading too fast. Don't answer the fool, answer the fool. Well, this one's actually a lot simpler. If you look back in the original text, it says, according to their foolishness, which means that there's really no wrong answer here. You can answer a fool or not answer a fool according to their foolishness. In other words, some fools you'll come in contact with that are in fact so foolish, so out there, and the subject matter is so inconsequential, it's not worth talking about it, it's not worth bringing it up, and it's not worth correcting them. Perhaps you come across someone else who's being foolish about something that's not worth being foolish about. Maybe it's the existence of God, maybe it's the love of God, and, and you find it necessary to have to correct them at that point in time according to their foolishness. My point is there's all sorts of scriptures about the impossible. In the Bible, we see all sorts, of, all sorts of things that are impossible. For instance, the Red Sea. How did that happen? I mean, literally, Moses walks up to the Red Sea, puts his staff in, and it opens up. We see the sun not moving when Moses raises his hands. We see Noah encountering to face a boat he knows not how to build, and then a global flood. How's that possible? We see a man-eating whale, and the man survives. How's that possible? And then we see literally from Elijah, fire coming down from heaven. The book of the Bible is filled with the impossible. What about what God tells us to do, tells people in the Bible to do? You see, let's look at this. Did you know that Isaiah, he was commanded to preach the same message for three years? Three years. It's hard enough for me to preach the same message twice in the same year, let alone the same message every week for three years. That seems pretty hard. But how about this? Go back and read Isaiah chapter 20. He said, preach the message for three years and do it naked. Let's set in. I think King James actually says, says exposed his bottom. I mean, I'm talking buck naked for three years church is it getting to any i mean we skip over these things that's what isaiah 20 is that's one of his mission pretty difficult he said to peter peter we're in the middle of a storm you're on a boat everyone looks like they're about to die how about you get out of the boat and walk on top of the water seems pretty difficult to do impossible perhaps even and then, then, then you have these messages where Jesus comes across people, people who need him, people who are ailing, people who are suffering. The man with the, the withered hand, it's not a word we use today. Uh, I, I'm not even sure, you know, what the uh, physiological issue was, but, but generally in the Bible when we hear about this and we see the histories of it, it's basically a decrepit, malformed hand. It's not usable it's not of any value to the person that has it. It's actually a, a sign of um, you know, disregard and a sign that there's something wrong with them and that they're to be almost cast off. And Jesus comes across this man and he says for him to give him his hand, to stretch out his hand. 
seems so basic, so obvious for you and for me to stretch out your hand, to extend your arm, to extend your fingers, and to shake someone's hand or put your hand on somebody. But if you had a withered hand, it is literally impossible. And yet Jesus asked him to do this before he even healed him. It required a step of faith for this person to do something that he had never done in his life for the first time. Okay, how about the man with the, uh, the mat, right? And they open up the roof and they lower him down on the mat and he's sitting there. He's, uh, he's been paralyzed his entire life. He's never moved. He's never walked. He's never stood. He's on the mat. His friend's looking down from the rooftop. They open the spot. They put him in front of Jesus. And Jesus takes one look at him and he says, what? He says, pick up your mat. Arise? Are you guys tracking? Impossible. Did it again with the man at the well. Impossible. Get up. Walk. Of course, God heals these people. But at first, we're presented with the impossible. Now, we hear these stories, and there are stories in the Bible. And so we say, oh, wow, we serve a big God, a wonderful God, an amazing God. I know what kind of God I serve. But how does it impact you? How about you? What is God saying for you to do? Are you being presented with the impossible? Maybe in your ministry, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your finances. What is it that you need God to intervene today? And I could preach a whole message about all the miracles of God and how he can intervene in your life today. But he told me to make this so very basic today. So I'm going to give it a shot. How about the things that God said for us to do as Christians? Do they sound difficult? How about this one? Love those who hate you? That, that, that's hard to do. Maybe impossible. How about pray without ceasing? I mean, I'm a good pastor. I pray a lot. I read my Bible a lot. I pray for a lot of you a lot of the time. But do I pray without ceasing? Do I stop to eat? Do I stop to sleep? Do I stop to, to go to my job during the course of the day? Do, am, I, am I overwhelmed by sometimes the task that's in front of me and I forget to pray and I just put my hand to the task, my hand to the labor? Yes. Am I failing in that commandment? Probably. And I've preached plenty of sermons of, of how to interpret that verse and these other verses so that we can walk in faith and we can have God's blessing. But at the end of the day, this is what he says for us to do. And yet we fail. And you say, well, Sean, you're, you're, you're really you're taking it out of context. You're making it too strict, too black and white. Clearly, that's not what he meant. Really? I thought the Bible said, and by this time they called it a commandment, so I'm pretty sure we can go black and white here. He said for kids to obey their mom and their dad. Any of you got kids? Has, I mean, your kid's great, Chris. I love him. He's, uh, he's wonderful. I've ran with him. I've spent time with him. I high-five him. But I have to imagine there has to come a point in time when your Christian little innocent baby boy, you tell him to do one thing and he does another. Frankly, every child on the face of the earth has disobeyed their parents at one point or another. It's, it's literally impossible to fulfill that commandment. What are you getting to, Pastor Sean? Well, I'm going to show you. How about... This one, God commands us to love. He commands us to love. Now, as charismatic Christians, we get a little carried away with this one. Yeah, we love each other. We love the people who come through the door. You know, we love God. 
and we love others. We reduced it to that. And Jesus said to reduce it to simply that, to, to love God and love others. And so we go ahead and, and we attempt to do that. God puts a condition on it. He says, I don't want you just to love. I need you to love perfectly. And for some of us, and let's just make me, for me, it becomes very natural to love my wife what, in, in what I believe is a perfect love a lot of the time. Love my own children a lot of the time. There are times where it's very difficult to do that. It's not 100% of the time all the time. It's not like when my wife and I are on the different pages and we do the wrong thing at the wrong time that we are not in a, a loving condition, at least from the outward perspective. Or my children, you know, when I'm disciplining them or when I'm correcting them or maybe I got it wrong and I said the wrong thing at the wrong time, they're not feeling that perfect love. And so if I can't get it right all the time, 100% of the time with my own family, my own children, who I see, who I interact with, who, who I have a, a very strong connection with here on planet Earth, how then would I be able to do it with what God's really asking me to do, which is to love God perfectly? I mean, I'm supposed to have an intimate relationship with him. I'm supposed to walk with him and talk with him. I'm supposed to know him as intimate as my wife, and I'm supposed to love him perfectly. And in fact, the Bible gives very specific guidance for how to love God. Very specific guidance. And, and when you see it, you'll say, yeah, I, I know exactly who that verse is. Well, one of those verses is right here in Mark chapter 12. You know you've heard this because they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he says this. He says it again in Matthew chapter 22. He says these words, to love the Lord and to love others. Now, that's how we remember it. That's the simplified version. That's not the law. You see, the law was written before Jesus ever said it. The law was written in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he said the same thing then he did in the Gospels twice. He said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and if you get even close to that, all of your strength. Let that settle in for a second. The law, as it's written, is in fact very difficult. I love my wife with all of my heart. I could probably check that off and say, yeah, I love God with all my heart. I can put God in front of my wife. I can reprioritize my life and put God first. I can probably do that with all of my soul. Sure, God has my soul. I'm not giving my soul to anyone else including my wife. Lord can have my soul. I can rationalize how I can probably do that. With all my mind? Really? My mind is racing all the time, every day. And yes, I tell myself I love God, but then there's other things that occupy my mind and my attention. And while most of the time my mind loves God, my mind is focused usually on other things. And my strength well, I can say what I'm doing, I'm doing it as unto the Lord, but there are a lot of things I'm doing to take care of my family or my home or my children or my job or my finances, and I can do them as unto the Lord, but they're for me, church, not for God. 
So if, if I can't even get it right in my own life, how could I possibly do what Jesus is asking me? Are you following? Let me ask you this. Has anyone ever been able to love the Lord with all their heart, all of their soul, and all their mind? The answer is no one. Not a single person has been able to do that. God, in fact, knew that while we would be under this law, no one could love him that perfectly. So do you know what he did? Well, it seems like he created something that was impossible to do, requiring us to do the impossible. It seemed like no matter how many other commandments we would keep, we would inevitably fail this one. Jesus is making a monumental point here. No one, no not one, is good enough to please God, let alone be in God's presence, let alone be in God's presence for all eternity. You want to be in God's presence for all eternity? He says, fine, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'll welcome you. No, that's not what he did. Although so many of us believe it is, and we beat ourselves up about not being perfect enough. Or even worse, we judge others for not being perfect enough. But Jesus right here, he's saying again and again, stop trying and judging perfection. It will never work. You need another way. The Pharisees tried to legislate perfection, and they failed miserably. God said, no matter how well you do that, you need to be able to do this on top of it. You can't do it, you will fail. So do you know what he did? You see, this is the law, and the law must be followed. And yet Jesus Christ said, this is the most important thing. So do you know what he did? For God... For God, now watch, so loved. How many times have you read this verse? How many times have you said this verse? How many times has it come out your mouth? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever, or whatever flavor of John 3.16 you have, and you focus on him giving, you focus on his love, you focus on his begotten son. There are so many points of emphasis in this verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. The whole world, not just a few, but everyone in it. We focus on so many parts, but rarely do I ever hear a sermon preached on that little word right there, that small little word that we skip right over so often. He so loved why did he say that? What is the importance of so loving? How did he love us so? He loved us so much. He loved us by demonstrating to us for the first time what perfect love looks like. You see, it's law and grace side by side. For the very first time, the law says you're not good enough. Grace is you're going to receive it even when we don't deserve it, when we don't earn it. 
but you still need to abide in the law. Somebody's got to love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. Somebody's got to do it. Enter Jesus Christ. He didn't just love church. He so loved. He loved each and every one of us perfectly. He so loved us when we couldn't make up our mind if we were going to come to church. He so loved us when we had good intentions but did the wrong thing. He so loved us when our actions didn't line up with our words. He so loved us when we said what we said to our children. We said what we said to our husband or our wife. We said what we said to that friend of ours. He so loved us despite the decisions that we've made in the past and some of the decisions we are making right now. Church, do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is God didn't just love. He so loved you with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his strength. He demonstrated us for the first time perfect love. And it explains so much now when we go back and look at Scripture of a God who creates, a God who cares, a God who chooses, a God who sends Christ. We look and we say, because he so loves, he creates to love his creation. Because he so loves, he cares about each of us and where we are. Because he so loves, he allows others to choose him, desiring a loving response. Because he so loves, he sent Christ as the solution to our separation from him. And because he so loves, he desires his love for us for an eternity, not just a point in time, church. I hope this is setting in. So I'm going to continue. The Bible says, this is love. Not that we loved God. This is 1 John 4.10. Look it up. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. This is explaining the whole verse where Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law. The law must be fulfilled. But he came to fulfill the law. Jesus Christ was the only one who could so love. And so he did it by giving his life for us at the cross, extending his hands this much and saying, I love you. He loved us perfectly, church. When God sent Jesus, he was effectively saying to us, I know you can't love me perfectly, so watch me now. I will love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. Church, this basic concept, it must reorient our thinking. How much better would we feel each day if we grasped this simple concept? God knew we couldn't do it, so he would intervene. Each day, we are not judged by how much we love him or how little we love him. He is offering an unconditional, an eternal, a supernatural love for you and for me. He's offering a love for whatever you're going through, however you're feeling, 
Whatever your challenges are, whatever your desires are, whatever your future is, whatever your needs are, whatever it is that you are going through in your world, in your situation, he understands it and he loves you in the midst of all of it. The question is, will you accept it? He has offered it, he is offering it, and he will offer it, but will you accept it? You see, most of us struggle with this. Even the Christians, most of us here today are Christians. You know, I was planning for fall festival and planning to preach a message to maybe the, the lost, but today most of you are Christians, and you know what? We all think we need to do more to get more. With God, too. We need to do more for God, and then we get more from God. Like that somehow this eternal banking system that's taking place. And yet, rather, he wants us to be more through the realization of how much he loved us. He wants to be more of who we are, knowing he's got our back and who we are as individuals. Let me say it differently. There are two ways to heaven. There are two ways to be in God's presence forever. Way number one, love perfectly. You see, because God can only accept perfection in heaven. You can be perfect, love perfect, and even if he forgave all of your sins from this day forward and you start it right now, began to love God perfectly from this day forward, inevitably you will fail at some point. So I recommend option B. Option B Option B, church, is that someone else loves God perfectly. And that someone else, in this case, Jesus Christ, he clothes you in his love. His love comes inside of you. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see your love for him. He sees Jesus Christ inside of you, a perfect love. Will you accept it? The implications of this they're mind-blowing. It's such a simple, basic concept for God so loved the world. Let's look at biblical love just a little closer before we end here. The Bible says that greater love has no one than this, than to lay one's life down for his friends. But we often interpret this as dying for someone. Of course, Jesus Christ went and died for us, but he said this before he died. This is John 15, 13. Greater love has no man in this than they lay their life down. What does it mean to lay your life down for someone? Well, before you go and die for someone, it requires you to think sort of a step ahead. It requires you know, what I call supernatural empathy. Empathy. It's to put yourself, as Amber was saying, in someone else's shoes. Put yourself in their place. To feel what they're feeling or attempt to. To walk in their shoes. To bear their burdens. To feel their joys. To weep their tears. That's what it means to lay your life down for someone else. Love is this empathy. And it's empathy in action. It moves you to action. Jesus Christ is saying here there's a supernatural selflessness taking place for the greatest love. So, I ask you this morning, are you capable of putting yourself in someone else's shoes? You can try to. I can talk to you. I can listen to you. I can hear about you. But I can't, I can't walk in you. I can't feel what you're feeling at night. 
I can't feel the loss of Chuck the way you felt the loss of Chuck. I can try. I can ask. And God has asked us to do that. But the greatest love for me to actually walk in her shoes. And so how do we do this? To feel, to walk, to weep, to rejoice. God says that he is love. That God is love. So let's break it down real quick. If God is love, then he must be the greatest form of it because God is the greatest. So if God is the greatest form of love, what must love do? Well, love must put itself in place of someone else. So if God loves us, what must he do? He must put himself in our place. He must walk with us. He must talk with us. He must feel what we feel. He must weep our tears. He must rejoice in our joys. He must bear our burdens. For God so loved. The greatest manifestation of love has already happened on our planet. God has put himself in our place. And there is no greater love, no greater love that you could ever know. When you feel it and when you don't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. Nothing you can do can alter his love. No good work can increase it. No sin can lessen it. When you feel it and when you don't, it's there nonetheless. We cannot change it. We can only receive it and be changed by it. We can only let it change us. For the greatest possible love has already happened. God has come down and it is only for us to receive that love and to share it with others. Church family, the cross it was not a demonstration of our perfect love and devotion to God. The cross is God's demonstration of his perfect love towards us. For it was while we were still sinners that Jesus died for us. We weren't perfect. We didn't love God perfectly. He did all this before we could get to that point. He didn't die for you and me because of our perfect love. He died for you and me because of his perfect love. He stretched his arms this wide and showed us. Are you following church? Are you getting the essence of why he added that word so loved? He wants you to understand the magnitude of grace this morning. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't possibly earn it. And so he went ahead and did it for you. One more verse I want to share to just capstone this thought. I've read it before many times, in fact, but this time, this time, I don't know, it did something for me. The verse is Philippians 2, it's 6 through 9. It says, though he was God, he gave up his divine privileges and he appeared in human form. That's the paraphrasing, if you will. Philippians says this, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death. This is a sobering thought, church. He's the master of the universe. 
He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords sitting in his dominion in heaven with an army of angels. Why would he want to leave that? And to leave it to come here, to earth, the place all of us are trying to leave to get to there? It's a sobering thought, church. You see, we sing this song. It's, it's, it's controversial, actually, in Christian circles. We sung it again today. The song is called Reckless Love. Just the title of it gives chills down certain people's backs. A song about God's love and the word reckless, which is somewhat derogatory or demeaning in somehow towards his love. And people debate this song all over, you know, Christendom. When I sing the song, I know how the Lord speaks to me in words I can't describe. Him leaving the 99 to chase after me, to fight for me. And it occurs to me when I sing that song that I'm thankful that God was reckless in his love, reckless with my schedule, reckless with my intentions, reckless with my goals and objectives, my desires, my own selfishness. I'm thankful he was reckless with my circle of friends and my social attitudes. I'm thankful he disrupted and invaded all of that to chase after me, to fight for me. And that's how I've reconciled that song in my spirit for so long until I read this verse once again and it occurred to me that our God in heaven gave it all up to come down here? Would you do it? No, you wouldn't do it. It's a reckless thought. What would possess a man to leave everything to come down here? You. You. You meant everything to him. More than what he had in heaven. You see, God understood to be human is to struggle with the idea that the world centers around, well, us. We often convince ourselves that our selfishness, our pride, and even evil is okay because it's our human right. It goes a little something like this. I can cheat on this test. I deserve to pass it. I can spend all my money on whatever I want. I need to enjoy it. I worked hard for it. I can have an abortion. I have the right over my own body to do with it as I will. Do you see how this thought process of being human invades everything we have? But as believers, we should have a different attitude, one that is capable of laying down our rights like Jesus did in order to love and to serve. If we say we follow and we love Christ, we must also intend to live like him. We must humble ourselves, our human rights, in favor for the rights of others to feel and experience love? Are we selfishly clinging to our rights? Or are we willing to love? And as discussed, we cannot love perfectly. So stop trying to be somebody who you are not. And start being the best version of you that God loves so much, by the way. In other words, don't create unrealistic expectations on yourself to love others based on what you see others do. That's not you, that's them. Instead, ask God to remind you of how you were made to love others.
ask him to show to you the others that need the love you're positioned and capable of offering, the empathy in action that you are capable to give, the listening, the helping, the encouraging, the giving. Look for these opportunities. God is directing them to you each and every day, but it may require you to lay down your station to deliver the action. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Church, this should change the very steps that we walk every day. To know the God of the universe loves us, every bit of us, the good and the bad. And that's not saying he doesn't expect us and intend for us to improve upon our life and to pursue him and to love better each and every day and to leave sin because he does not love sin, church. No mistake there. But he actually says in Romans, he says, if you were faced with the objective of laying your life down for somebody, you'd probably evaluate if they were a good person or not. And you probably wouldn't do it if they were an upright person, but maybe if they were really, really a good person, you'd consider it. He says it like this, now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though somebody might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet still sinners. Despite your sin today, church, he loves you with an everlasting love. And he is capable of doing something with you that no man or woman could. Will you accept it? I want to share this final story here before I let you go. I told you it was basic today. And the basic truths are so profound. This story is a true story. It's in the annals of history of the Greek one of the great Greek kingdoms was ruled by Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. And through his many victories as a conqueror, he had taken captives. And this time, he had taken a young prince of Armenia with his young and beautiful wife. They were brought forward to the tribunal of Cyrus to receive their sentence. Cyrus inquired of the prince, what would you give to be reinstated to your kingdom? The prince replied that he valued his crown and his liberty at a very low rate. But if the noble conqueror would restore his beloved wife to her former station and her dignity, he would willingly pay his life for the purchase. King Cyrus agreed the prisoners were dismissed to enjoy their freedom and former honors. And each prisoner was lavish in giving praise and honor to the new conqueror, to their new king, Cyrus. The prince said to his wife, And you, what do you think of this gracious Cyrus? You now have your freedom. She replied, I did not observe him. 
You did not observe him, exclaimed the husband. Upon whom then was your attention fixed? It was upon that dear and generous man, she replied, who declared his readiness to purchase my liberty at the expense of his life. This is yet another picture of how God intended it. Some of us may be brought to the point of laying our life down for someone that we deeply loved. And when they are in the presence of that, their life is completely transformed and everything else becomes noise that we can no longer see in light of the perfect love cast in front of us. This woman saw that in her husband and the celebrity of the new conqueror, the fame, the fortune, the distraction of the circumstance was of no meaning to her. Church, my prayer today is that we could get to that place with Lord God. That we could fixate our attention so clearly on Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in the world around us, in our government and in those abroad. What's happening, Father, in, in the tragedies of this world, Lord. That we would no longer look upon, Lord, with such anguish and tragedy. But yet, Lord God, we look to you as the one true perfect love, Lord God, who intends to do something about it. And he started by giving his life for you and for me. Can you imagine that woman, that young wife's reaction as she stared at her husband giving his life for her? Have you ever felt that way about anyone? Have you ever felt that way about Jesus Christ? Because he feels that way about you. We at Kingsway hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Sean. It was not by chance you listened to it. God is speaking to you. Visit kingswaycc.org to find the podcast from Pastor Sean. We pray today that this somehow inspired you to draw closer to God and to connect with His people, His purpose, and His power. God bless you.